I want this to be the greatest war picture ever made, Mr. Erdinger. I'm talking real human drama, along with the biggest battles ever filmed. When have I ever brought you a project that I couldn't deliver, Frank? Look, Tom, you're a good director. And this script is top-notch. And Margaret, you're my favorite lady producer to work with. But this is Monolith Studios. We make westerns where the horse is usually more charismatic than the cowboy. But if you take a flyer, just this once, I think we could turn this place into a real studio. Think of it. A squad of Union troops trapped in a farmhouse behind enemy lines, all leading up to the Battle of Gettysburg. I can smell the Oscar. So, is Lincoln's big speech in this? Get this. I was thinking that could be a scene that appears after the credits. Why would anyone want to sit until the end of the credits? It sets up the next movie. I call it a Christmas present. I'm sorry, Tom. It's not for us. We're going to kill so many horses, you'll be able to start a glue factory on the side. Gladys, what are the horse glue futures this morning? She's checking. Thank you, Gladys. You got yourself a green light. And with that, on May 6, 1948, director Tom Hartley and producer Margaret Chapman willed They Stood Tall into being. Conventional wisdom held that the public didn't have appetite for war films so soon after the end of World War II, but that didn't dissuade them. Part of the reason for their desperate push to get the film made centered around one man, Albert Sullivan. He was the only living Civil War combat veteran, and Tom wanted Albert at his side throughout the entire process to ensure that every single frame was as accurate as possible. But there's no way Tom could have known the chaos that would come from Albert's presence. Within a year, a handful of the actors would be institutionalized. The monolith studio lot would be reduced to ash, and every scrap of Tom's dream project would be destroyed. I'm Abby Larson, and welcome to Unremembered Hollywood, a podcast dedicated to telling completely real and true stories of Hollywood's yesteryear. Step back in time with me to when a young director and an old man set out to make the greatest war film in history. But much like the South, their rise wouldn't go so great. And now, Unremembered Hollywood presents A Confederate Sea of Dunces. Tom and Margaret hit the ground running and in just a few days all the lead roles were filled. Van Heflin was cast as Colonel George Tanner the leader of the Union Squad, and Merle Oberon and Leslie Brooks were set as Anna and Clara Boone, the sisters who harbored them. The stage was set for Albert Sullivan's Hollywood debut. Albert Sullivan was conscripted into the Confederate Army in September of 1861, joining the 1st Tennessee Infantry. He first saw action in January of 1862 at the Battle of Willard's Mill, Kentucky. He wrote home to his mother on the eve of the battle. Dearest mother, tomorrow is to be our first combat. Even now I hear the songs of the Yankees wafting through the cypress trees, reminding me of the way you and Aunt June used to sing to us kids on the porch. It is a shame that we must do this bloody and vile business, but my compatriots and I were called to serve and serve we shall. If tomorrow is to be my last day, May you and Father know I spent it thinking of you in our little parcel of land. Albert survived his first battle, obviously, and when they made camp a few days later, 
he wrote home again. Dearest mother, well, that fucking sucked. We lost real bad. Yesterday, a goddamn cannonball blew my friend James's legs off. That's right. L-E-G-S. Both of them. There's a little bit of one still there, but they cut it off with a hacksaw while he was awake. He's pretty bummed out, especially since he wanted to be a boot seller after the war. I told him that there were lots of jobs he could do, like they could plop him in a crow's nest and he could be a lookout, or, or maybe he could get a wheelbarrow and someone could push him around and he could still sell boots. I even gave him a slogan, I don't have any legs, so more boots for you. He didn't seem to like it. No cheering some people up, I guess. I should mention that I made it through the conflict unscathed, but not for the enemy's lack of trying. I had a pretty close call toward the end of the battle. As the air was thick with smoke and the cries of dying men, I came across a lone soldier, still charging across the field. Our eyes met and soon our rifles were trained on each other. We shared a look, and I could see in his eyes the same feeling that I had. Why must we fight? Why can our leaders not settle their differences, as I have no quarrel with him or anyone else? And then he fucking shot at me. He missed, which is totally on him because we were super close to each other. It was so embarrassing that I couldn't even bring myself to shoot him. No matter though, I'll probably get cleaved in twain tomorrow afternoon by a feller from Jersey or wherever. Love always, Albert. Albert remained uncleaved for the rest of the war. His only injury, a piece of cannon shrapnel that entered his shoulder and remained there for the rest of his life. He would often say that the hunk of metal would pain him when there was trouble on the horizon. And as he stepped off the train at Union Station in Los Angeles to meet Tom and Margaret, it was throbbing. And now, it says here a real advertisement from 1948, but you and I both know that it's not going to be real. No, I'm going to, I know. And now, a real advertisement from 1948. friends, I'm Cary Grant, and I'm here today on your radio to tell you about a way you and your family can earn extra money. Remember World War II? It was just a couple of years ago, and a pretty big deal. Well, some of those German fellows we were fighting up and flew the coop after the war. What I'd like to tell you about today is a unique opportunity to see the world, meet new and interesting people, and do a little good. I'm of course referring to Nazi hunting. Here's how it works. You just call our toll-free hotline and one of our operators will give you the last known location and details about the Nazi you're to hunt. They'll book your travel and accommodations for you and give you everything you need to catch those rascally war criminals. And who knows, maybe you'll be off to sunny Argentina or beautiful Italy. Once you're there, just find some kind of stick or cudgel to knock out your target and then board your next flight to Israel so they can give the Nazi a good talking to. You might be surprised to find out that I myself have used this service. Why, just a few months ago, my old roommate Randolph Scott and I spent weeks on the Amalfi Coast looking for a Nazi officer named Fritz something or other. Just the two of us, far away from the prying lens of the paparazzi and our wives in a luxury hotel with all the wine we could drink. We looked for that Nazi in a wide variety of museums and historical ruins. We even went swimming in the Mediterranean Sea together several times, just in case that Nazi was there. It was 
time of my life. Ah. But after a few weeks of no luck, it was time to pack up our bathing suits and head back home. But believe you me, we won't rest until this Nazi scum has been brought to justice. Even if it means we have to go on months-long vacations, away from everything, several times a year. Nazi hunting. When you call, tell them Carrie recommended you. So that was Cary Grant doing an ad for a freelance Nazi hunting referral service, I guess. Tom and Margaret took Albert to the production office on the Monolith Studios lot. There they outlined their vision for the film and how Albert could help them. We want this picture to be like nothing that's ever been seen before, Mr. Sullivan. That's where you come in. I want our actors to hear from you about your first-hand experiences. If you want them to know what the war was like, young man, I will need to do a lot more than talk to them. What do you have in mind? Those boys need to experience just a tincture of the hell that we went through. I propose they do a few weeks of boot camp, just like we did back in 61. That is brilliant. Margaret, can we afford that? Not really. Naturally, they ignored Margaret. The following Monday at 5 a.m., the actors arrived at an abandoned army barracks set in Burbank for their basic training. Albert, in his old Civil War uniform, was waiting for them. Van Heflin, accustomed to the star treatment, arrived wearing a suit with his assistant in tow. He approached Albert and flashed his million-dollar smile. Mr. Sullivan, I'm Van Heflin. It's an honor to meet you. The honor is mine, Mr. Heflin. I've seen all your movies. Oh, really? That's wonderful. Van looked down and saw Albert holding a knife a little too close to his throat. No, I have not. I was distracting you, and if we were on the battlefield, I would already slice you from twinkle to stinkle. Now get in line. Twinkle to stinkle? Quiet! Everyone sound off. The other five assembled actors, playing the only survivors of Tanner's squad, stepped forward. I'm Mitchell Hargreaves. I just want to say... Next! Langston Devereaux, sir. Chap Thaxton, at your service. Quentin Poultice. The Brubaker Agency? Roy Flaunt, Mr. Sullivan. Albert paced in front of them, albeit very slowly. Well, looky here. We have half a dozen men who can remember their own names. I can remember my name, too. Quit your bragging! Now put on your uniforms and we'll set about the fool's errand to turn you into soldiers. Would you be so kind as to direct us to the fitting rooms? The what? Where be our dressing rooms? Dressing room? You think we had dressing rooms at the Battle of Geech Bend or the skirmish of Pappy's old windmill? And if we'd had them, they would have been painted red with the blood of our fallen brothers. Step two, goddammit! After the actors were dressed, Albert put them through their paces, marching all over the grounds for hours and hours. By the time lunch rolled around, the actors were more than ready. Where are we going for lunch, boys? Smokehouse or the Tam? The Smokehouse sounds great. Going to lunch? You'll do no such thing. We're going to the mess for your rations. I hate to pull this old chestnut out, but contractually I'm to take- Contractually my hickory ass! Take your damn meals! With that, Albert threw ration boxes on the ground at the men's feet. Each one contained a piece of salt pork, some hard tack, a cube of dried vegetables, and a sugar cube. This is unacceptable. Langston Devereaux. 
Are you going to be like this the whole movie? What? Like what? A diva. We're supposed to be here to learn what it was like, you know, so the movie will be better. I'm no diva. Just ask my assistant. Carl, am I a diva? No, sir! I signed on to this movie to make something meaningful. From now on, I'm staying in character. And if Sergeant Sullivan tells us to eat this, well, I'm damn sure gonna eat it. The other actors nodded in agreement. You're right, boys. Ha-ha! Bring on the slop. The worse, the better. With that, they settled down to eat their meals. I was wrong. Worse is worse. Chap Thaxton choked down his meal and was examining his sugar cube. Mr. Sullivan, is this supposed to be for tea? No, not for tea. Try some. Chap took a little nibble, and the others followed suit. A little strange to just have a sugar cube. Sugar cube? That's dysentery. Wait, what? Did you say dysentery? Well, how else do you expect to get it? (laughs) Oh, calm down. I had dysentery half a dozen times during the war. After a few hours, you'll forget you're shitting yourself halfway into the grave. Margaret, who had been generally supportive of Albert's boot camp, pulled him aside. Mr. Sullivan, we want to say that the boys all look fantastic, and the drills that you've been putting them through are already making a real difference. You're mad about the dysentery. Mm, Not mad. But it is about the dysentery. I'd say I'm just a little worried. I'll let you in on a little secret. That's not dysentery. It's just a sugar cube dipped in X-lax. Oh, God, the agony. So they're just... Being crybabies. Don't you worry, Miss Chapman. I'll have those theater types turned into soldiers yet. After that unpleasantness ended, the actors moved on to combat training. To add an extra air of realism, Albert had battle sounds piped onto the field. Bayonet work! This is up close and personal combat, and it can get ugly. There's a reason we used to call it the old stabby stabby bleed bleed. Now if you're locked in mortal combat with an enemy, and manage to thrust your bayonet into his gut, the first item on your agenda should be to make eye contact. Now what I would do is look shocked at what I'd just done at first, then grip my teeth and twist the blade. And as the other man falls, you stand over him and glare like your humanity and innocence is evaporating. Some people like to yell to the heavens after a bayonet kill, kind of like you're crying out to the Almighty at what you've been forced to do. For me, that's a little dramatic, but I know you fellas are actors. You might want to jazz it up a bit. Good Lord. Some people go religious with it. What's important is you put your own stamp on it. At the end of the week, the actors had been whipped into something of a cohesive unit. After a shaky start, the men had come to respect Albert and he them. Margaret, despite being over budget for pre-production, wanted to give her lead actresses the same attention that the actors got. So she arranged to put them through finishing school with 98-year-old etiquette teacher Ida Calloway. Calloway wasted no time in getting started. Miss Oberon, straighten your posture. Miss Brooks, your posture is too straight. We mustn't make others feel bad about their own spinal etiquette. Like this? My heavens, they certainly cast the lady of the evening well. I'm not playing a lady of the evening. You could have fooled me. 
down to brass tacks. Manners during the war of northern aggression come down to the four F's. Fellowship, forks, flattery, and fans. What do I mean when I say fellowship? Conversation. Correct. Be good at it. Where are you from? What manner of consumption do you have? These are all excellent conversation lines. And if you can't think of anything to say, excuse yourself and go weep in the restroom. Never weep in the parlor. A man could see you and be exposed to undesirable emotions. Well, we mustn't have that. You're catching on. And for heaven's sake, if you have to cough blood into a handkerchief, do it discreetly and only glance down at it when no one else is looking. Others are not interested in your foreshadowing. Now, the second F. Forks. The fork always goes in the left... Or is it the right? No, no, it's the left. I can never remember this one. You know what? Just do whatever everyone else is doing. I thought you were an expert. Ow, my hand! Part of the first F is staying quiet when your betters are speaking. My betters? Ow! Anything else? The next F is for flattery. If someone is being nice to you, flatter them right back. If someone is being mean to you, Flatter them anyway. I think you'll find it most disarming. Is this a real system? Those earrings are divine. You must tell me where you got them. Oh, these? Well, they were given to me by the director of my last film. Ah, flattery. I see. And the final F. Fans. Constantly be fanning yourself. Why? Well, I don't know. It's just part of the three Fs. Okay, just... Do it. When we return, the cameras roll on They Stood Tall. New from Monolith Pictures, the studio that brought you the fighting horses of Pocahontas County and Rufus, the horse who was also sheriff versus Billy the Kid's horse, comes a tale of courage and brotherhood that will make you stand up and cheer. It's Domino Featherwind. The Hoofed Queen of the Prairie. The newest monolith film is a thrill a minute, as Domino and her steadfast rider Buckles McMaster protect a wagon train on its way out west. Come on, Domino. There's trouble ahead. That's the spirit, girl. See Domino and Buckles fend off ruthless Apaches. Ravenous wolves. And Italians. I'm gonna get you, Domino Featherwind. Look out, Domino. He's got a pizza pie. It's not just work on this wagon train, either. Will the famous bachelorette Domino find love on the trail? I think that quarter horse is making eyes at you, Domino. <laughs> well, let me dismount first. Thrills. Chills. Romance. Domino Featherwind, the hoofed queen of the prairie, has it all. Coming soon from Monolith. I would watch that, actually. On a gray Monday morning in July 1948, the cast and crew of They Stood Tall arrived at Monolith for the first day of principal photography. To ease the cast and crew in, a simple interior scene was up first. 
In this master audio recording, the Boone sisters are debating what to do with the gravely wounded Colonel Tanner and his men. And action! Clara, they cannot stay here. They are rebels. They are far from home and they're scared. We cannot just cast them to the wolves. The wolves are at the door of this great nation of ours, little sister. If we aren't able to overcome... Is this the actual dialogue you're using? Albert popped into frame in full uniform. Cut. Excuse me, Mr. Sullivan. We're filming right now. Is that what you call it? Because to me, it looks like you're shitting all over the memory of my fallen brothers. Okay, everyone. Let's take five. Leslie and Merle, beautiful work. Don't change a thing. Tom took Albert aside. He wrote about their conversation in his memoir, Oh, Tom, we heartly knew ye. I appreciate your presence here on set, but I would prefer it if you would bring up concerns to me privately. You're right, Mr. Hartley. I just get riled up on occasion. I'll keep my grave misgivings to my own self. That would be... Did you say grave misgivings? Oh, yes, the script is terrible. Not at all how people talked in those days, and full of inconsistencies, but message received, and I shall zip my apron. Everything all right? Uh, Mr. Sullivan was just giving me some pointers on making this historically accurate. So, Mr. Sullivan, what would you do differently in this scene? Well, the women folk need to be spitting an awful lot more and mouths full of chewing tobacco. Really? Oh, yeah. In those days, especially in old Virginia, most people's mouths were so full of chew that you couldn't hardly understand them. Okay, good note, good note. It's just that in movies, we tend to prefer to be able to understand the actors when they speak. I reckon you're right. So long as you can see the tobacco juice all around their mouths and down their chins, maybe some splatter on their dresses, that should get the point across. Mr. Sullivan, I just want to thank you personally for all the tremendous help you've offered the production. I love everything that you're saying. You've given us so much to play with here. My thanks to you, Miss Chapman. As Albert walked away, Margaret and Tom huddled. What are you doing? At least he feels like part of the team now. My worry is that he's going to be up in everyone's business. Like that. They turned to see Albert on set, shoving chewing tobacco into Leslie Brooks' mouth. No, no, like this. Wedge it betwixt your gums and cheek. Tom and Margaret rushed to the stage. Tom... I'm not completely comfortable with this. Mr. Sullivan, we need to clear the set to do a little lighting work. It's funny you mention that. I was going to suggest some tweaks to make it look more like it would have looked back in those days. Thank you, Mr. Sullivan. A production assistant escorted Albert back to his trailer. You know, I killed a fellow what looked like you back in 64. Here's his platoon, gals. No more dipping. Yuck! Thank God. I don't know, Maggie. It's not so bad. The first day of principal photography was off to an inauspicious start, but Tom was determined to get the train back on the tracks. They jumped forward to scene 32, where the soldiers were pinned down in the barn by Union troops. Come out, Yankees! Johnny Reb is here for a social call. Boys, I just want you to know, I'm proud as hell of all of you. No matter what happens out there, you've done your country proud. No, no, no! Cut. What is it now, Albert? Aren't these Yankees crying and soiling themselves out of fear? That's what happened to every damn interloper I ever came across. That's not what this picture is about. It's about a band of compatriots fighting and dying for each other and a larger cause. Ah, cowards, the lot of them. Okay, thank you, Albert. I'll think about it. All right, let's take that again. Tom, 
May I have a word? Of course, Van. What if Albert is right? He's not right. We're filming the script, our script. Well, yes, of course, absolutely. I just have this feeling that he's right about everything. Van, trust me here. Just do the lines as written, okay? Heflin nodded, and everyone got back in their places. And action! Boys, I just want you to know... I'm scared as all hell. The rebels are gonna kill us good and all for naught. Oh, dagnammit. I've soiled myself on account of my own damned cowardice. Cut. Van, what did we just talk about? I just wanted to try one like that, Tom. It, It felt good. Shitting yourself felt good? I was just acting like I did. You couldn't tell, though, right? I'm that good at acting. The other actors nodded their agreement, and Langston Devereaux piped up. I was playing a little scared that time, too, and and I agree with Albert. I I think we should be really cowardly. Listen, you're brave soldiers facing certain death with grace and dignity, and no one soil themselves this time, please. Ready? And action. Too young to die. Cut. Tom eventually got that scene in the can but Albert had already sowed the seeds of doubt in the actors' minds. As filming progressed, arguments on set became more and more common, and filming slowed to a crawl. Just a week into filming, Margaret Chapman found herself behind schedule for the first time. Frank Erdinger hadn't visited one of her sets since her second film, but as the budget spiraled up and up, it was all but inevitable. She was on stage 12 in between takes when she heard his voice. Margaret, my dear. A word, please. The two found a quiet corner of the stage that was set up as the barn exterior. Look, Margaret, I know you're dealing with a lot on this show, and I just wanted to come down here and tell you personally that you have my full support. I appreciate that, Mr. Erdinger. We're handling this consultant business, and we'll be back on schedule by the end of the week. I will remind you, however, that I was promised a certain gallonage of horse glue, and I need it sooner rather than later. Oh, yes, of course. You know our first big battle scene shoots next week, and you'll be up to your ears in horse cadavers by that afternoon. A picture horse named Sassafras sauntered over and nuzzled Erdinger. Why, you're a fine mare. Oh, I look forward to using your rendered bones to repair antique furniture, girl. (laughs) I'm sorry, guys. This is how this true story really happened, so there's, there's not much I can do. And worse... Merle Oberon became hopelessly addicted to chewing tobacco. After seeing four custom-made, hand-embroidered dresses completely ruined by tobacco juice, the costumers had resorted to running up immediately after takes and covering Merle with a garbage bag. You guys want some? Albert's presence had been disruptive since day one, but the following week when they moved outside to film the battle scenes, things went from bad to worse. The first morning outside started off with the typical challenges of a big battle scene involving hundreds of extras, but by 9 a.m., the cameras were ready to roll. Tom described his elation at how the day went in his diary. The first few shots we captured were nothing short of a perfect replica of what I had seen in my mind and a powerful reminder of why I wanted to make this picture so badly. Margaret breathed a sigh of relief as the morning's filming went smoothly. Tom's enthusiasm was infectious, and by the afternoon, everyone on the set had the notion that they were making something that could be special. Even Erdinger was pleased. Would you just look at that pile of dead horses? Oh, what a sight. Oh, 
As the last order of business before breaking for lunch, Tom blocked their afternoon scene. It was Arthur Shields' first day on set portraying General George Meade, the Union commander. Albert, who was now advising Heflin and the other actors about this sequence, took notice. So, Colonel Tanner, you're going to lead your men to yonder fence, and from there you'll defend... George Meade. What's the matter, Mr. Sullivan? Albert didn't hear them. To make matters worse, the armaments crew fired a few rifles and cannons as a test. Tom wrote about what he saw. To look at Albert in that moment, with gunfire and smoke in the distance, and a man who bore more than a passing resemblance to the general who killed scores of his friends standing right next to him, was to see that in his mind. He was right back on the real Gettysburg battlefield. Gather your rifles and follow me, boys. The actors, not quite sure what was happening, picked up their prop rifles and followed him toward Shields. When I give the order, fire upon General Meade. Wait, are we rolling? No time for that! We have to strike before Longstreet attacks Cemetery Hill and Meade takes so many of our brothers! Chap leaned over to Langston and whispered. Does he think that's really George Meade? Don't question the sergeant, Private. Oh God, not you two. Fire! Damn! We missed him! Reload! These are prop rifles! That's it, Private. You're on latrine duty. What latrine? The bathroom is right there! Aim! Aim! That's lunch, everyone. We'll try again after mess. The cast and crew headed for the commissary. Chap took Margaret aside. I need to talk to you about Albert. Did he try to get you to take laudanum? I thought I confiscated it all. Uh, no, ma'am. Uh, I get the sense that he might be getting a little confused. Well, he is 104. You're probably right. I'm sure it's nothing to worry about. It's just that he seemed to think Arthur was George Meade. It's certainly possible. But what harm can a centenarian do? Well, he did just order us to fire at him. But you didn't. I'll talk to him. With that, Margaret and Chap made for the commissary as well. Margaret sat with Leslie and Merle. Oh, Maggie, you're just in time. I was just hearing about a new fellow that Merle's been stepping out with. Well, out with it then. I've never met anyone like him. He works in the film. My money's on Van. You've never met anyone like Van Heflin? It's not Van. He's a little older. Just then, Albert passed by the table and gave Merle a big, knowing smile. He doffed his hat to her. Ladies, Miss Oberon. As he kept walking, the looks on Margaret and Leslie's faces turned from amused to revolted. Why are you having an affair with Albert Sullivan? How are you having an affair with Albert Sullivan? It's not an affair. We're just spending a little time together. His daughter is old enough to be your great-grandmother. Merle did the math as she put a piece of chew in her mouth. Well, it was fun while it lasted. As lunch was winding down and Merle lingered at the table, Albert came over. I was hoping we might go see a shadow play or some such this evening, Miss Oberon. Thank you for the kind invitation, Mr. Sullivan, but I really can't this evening. Oh, all right, then perhaps at the weekend. You are a delightful and interesting man, Albert, but I don't think it's a good idea. I do hope you understand. Of course. Deep down, Albert knew that he and Merle would never work. But the rejection still stung. Albert returned to set and cornered Tom. He was understandably in a foul mood. Tom, I'd like to yet again raise some concerns I have with the script. Oh, uh, well, we're about to start the next scene. It can't wait. 
Okay, sure. What if instead of Pickett's charge, we show a kind of alternate history where the South wins the battle? Well, it, it didn't. That's what alternate means. Okay, that's really interesting. But we're kind of going for a truthful, nuanced portrayal of the war. Are you accusing me of not being nuanced, you little shitheel? I'll tell you what. We'll shoot what we have written today, and if there's a little time left over, we can get some alternate takes. Fine. Filming commenced, and the scene with a triumphant General Meade holding off the Confederates in large part due to the bravery of Colonel Tanner and his men took up the rest of the day. Albert waited through setup after setup and take after take for his suggestions to be implemented, but that moment never came. Here's the martini shot. Everyone with a weapon, make sure you fire them. What about my version? We're not going to have time today, Mr. Sullivan, but we'll take a look for down the road a bit, all right? And action! As the massive battle unfolded in front of them, all Albert Sullivan could see was General Meade, and he knew what he had to do. When we return, the thrilling conclusion of a Confederate Sea of Dunces. Welcome to Olson Wood Shop and Repair Center. How can I help you? I have this antique chair that's been in the family for over 150 years, and I'm afraid the old girl has finally given out. Well, let's take a look. I see. Well, sir, the joints have just given out. <laughs> oh, the missus isn't going to want to hear that. Her great-great-great-great-grandfather made this. You can tell, because it sucks. Don't get your kindling pile ready quite yet, my good man. I'll just use some of Erdinger's horse glue. Erdinger's horse glue? That's right. Erdinger's horse glue is an all-natural product that can make your antique furniture good as new. Or make your brand new furniture as good as old. <laughs> what? Why would I want that? Exactly. And Erdinger's is the only horse glue that guarantees that at least half the contents of each bottle come from a horse that appeared in a motion picture from Monolith Studios. Monolith Studios? The same film studio that made Nags to Riches and Hieronymus Drysdale, the millionaire horse of Bel Air? That's the one. Says right here, this bottle contains Domino Featherwind. Wow. That picture was great. Well, I wouldn't say that. Erdinger's horse glue sounds amazing, but can I afford it? Look at it this way. Is it more expensive than telling your wife that her chair's at the bottom of the river? When you put it that way, I guess Erdinger's horse glue is the horse glue for me. Erdinger's horse glue, stick that won't stop. A finished horse in every job. I'm officially lobbying for the next episode to not have as much horse glue content in it, and I encourage you to do the same. Tweet to at UnrememberedPod with hashtag StopItWithTheHorseGlue. The crew of They Stood Tall was assembled on set ready for the day. They were only missing one thing, their lead actors. Only Chap Thaxton was there waiting in his costume. Where is everybody? Leslie and Merle are in makeup. I haven't seen Van or anyone. The prop master approached Tom. Mr. Hartley, I don't know how this could have happened, but uh, someone broke into our storage room and took all the weapons. The studio was locked down all night. Who could have done that? It was Albert and the actors. Albert? Why? I think his brain seceded. Bring forth the war criminal charge made! Tom and the rest of the crew ran to the front gate of Monolith to find Albert, along with the rest of the leading actors and several dozen extras, assembled along the sidewalk. 
They were all armed and were supported by several cannons. With the actors in a mix of Union and Confederate uniforms, it was a very confusing sight. Mr. Sullivan, what are you doing? I shall not watch my friends die at Gettysburg again. Hand over George Meade and we can end the carnage. This isn't George Meade. This is Arthur Shields. He's an actor. I was in How Green Was My Valley. Steady, boys. It's a Yankee trick. Van, is this some kind of joke? The public loves an underdog story, Maggie. Sergeant Sullivan has convinced us to defect. Isn't that great? In character forever. In character forever! Merle and Leslie emerged from makeup and came to see the ruckus. What's going on? Albert? I'm terribly sorry, Miss Boone, but a man's honor must take precedent over matters of the heart. Did he just call me Miss Boone? It's a long story. For my fallen brothers. Fire! Langston lit one of the cannons. Should we run or something? It's just going to be a lot of noise. They're just props. That looked pretty real. It might have looked pretty real, but the cannon was still just a prop. Forensic testing would reveal that the sound of the cannon was enough to knock over the set, which had been hurriedly built on the cheap at the demand of the skinflint Frank Erdinger. But it was enough to instill confidence in Sullivan and the actors, and scare the hell out of everyone else. Charge! The actors quickly overwhelmed the studio gates and reached the set. Tom, Margaret, and the actors who hadn't gone insane hid in the Boone home set. Where is Bade? Arthur, please, don't be a hero. Nope, I wasn't going to. Sullivan got an idea. If they won't come out, we'll have to smoke them out. Someone handed Sullivan a lit Molotov cocktail. Finally, the South rises! As he reared back to throw, Merle Oberon came out onto the porch. As she fanned herself... Mr. Sullivan... I just noticed how well that uniform fits you. And you hold that Molotov cocktail so authoritatively. You really think so? Most assuredly. Albert blinked a few times and looked at the flaming bottle in his hand. The hell is this? Did I have another one of my spells? Never mind that, Mr. Sullivan. You just need to rest. That sounds nice. Ready to put it all past him, Albert absentmindedly tossed the flaming bottle over his shoulder. It shattered against a wall setting the whole set on fire. Dagnabbit. Everyone watched as the fire consumed the They Stood Tall set, but weren't too concerned about the size of the fire, as it was on a fairly barren section of the lot. What it was close to, however, was the studio's old utility building, which Frank Erdinger had converted into his horse glue factory. As the flames inched closer and closer, Margaret realized what was happening. Everyone, run! Within minutes, the glue factory exploded, igniting fires all over the lot. Within hours, Monolith Studios would be nothing more than a smoking pile of ash. Miraculously, no one was killed, but all the original negatives for They Stood Tall were destroyed. Tom would try to get the movie off the ground for the next decade, But sadly, that dream went up in smoke with the rest of Monolith. Margaret Chapman, buoyed by stories of her heroism that day, continued to churn out movies all over town, even earning three Oscar nominations over her career. Van Heflin, Langston Devereaux, and the other actors who fell under Sullivan's thrall were all charged with numerous crimes, 
but their lawyers were able to successfully argue that their clients had the world's first cases of Civil War Thespian Derangement Syndrome. Each spent a year in a mental facility on the coast and quietly returned to their careers in 1950. Leslie Brooks returned to work almost immediately and never again spoke about her experience on They Stood Tall. Merle Oberon's star also continued to rise, and after a brief stay in rehab for chewing tobacco addiction, received her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1960. As for Albert Sullivan, he was charged with a number of offenses, but the charges were dismissed due to his advanced age. He would only live another 12 years before drowning in a lake while jet skiing. Unremembered Hollywood was created, written, and produced by Charlie Farnville. Abby Larson was played by Annie Savage. That's me. Original music by Jonathan Dinerstein, with Civil War Violin by Rebecca Ward, with Hal Lublin as Albert Sullivan, Mike Rock as Tom Hartley and Cary Grant, Shuley Cowan as Margaret Chapman, Elizabeth Hauer as Merle Oberon, Bryce Johnson as Van Heflin, Mark McConville as Chap Thaxton, Christine Weatherup as Leslie Brooks, John Ennis as Frank Erdinger and Henry Olson, Fred Cross as Langston Devereaux and Prop Master, Judson Jones as Buckles McMaster, Justin Wright Newfeld as Arthur Shields, Roy Flaunt, and Confederate Commander, and Krista Kimlico Jones as Ida Calloway. Join us next month for another unremembered tale from Hollywood's yesteryear. You can subscribe and find more episodes and info on our website, unrememberedhollywood.com. We're also on Instagram and Twitter, if such things interest you, at unrememberedpod. And if you wouldn't mind, write us a review in iTunes. And in case you hadn't noticed, Unremembered Hollywood is a work of fiction. Some of the names are the names of real people, but they never said these words in this order. Characters, dialogue, and actions were all completely made up. I can't believe I have to say this, but a horse glue operation never subsidized a film studio, and Cary Grant was not a freelance Nazi hunter, as good as he probably would have been at.